Welcome to the Let's Talk Money and More podcast with me, Leslie Thomas. The aim of the podcast is to get us all talking about money more. Talking about money is still considered to be a taboo. We don't talk about money enough. Women don't talk about money enough. And that needs to stop. In this podcast, my guests and I talk about money, mindset, and how to turn around limiting beliefs, allowing you to develop a healthy, wealthy money mindset. Our relationship with money doesn't just affect our finances, but impacts every aspect of our business. And most of all, our own sense of self-value and self-worth. By mastering your mindset, you can in turn master the money you make in your business. Welcome to the latest episode of the Let's Talk Many and More podcast with me, Leslie Thomas. Today is another great guest episode. Martin Kuhl is a mental health advocate with a focus on evidence-based prevention in schools and the workplace. With inspiration from his own lived experience, his purpose is to diffuse the negative narrative and bring a more human, compassionate voice to well-being and mental health for everyone, every day. Originally from the UK, today Martin lives near Zurich with his French wife and Italian rescue dog, Louis. He also makes, according to Martin, the best burger you'll ever taste. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. It's absolutely fantastic to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Leslie. It's great to be here. So I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all my guests. What's your money story? So I've listened to a few of your podcasts previously, trying to look for some inspiration here. And I think my earliest memory, certainly around money, was a school trip, probably in the mid-1980s, when we went to the Isle of Wight on a school trip, um, or day out or something like that. And I used my £2 pocket money that we had at the time um, to buy... 20 wham bars. I don't know if you remember them. Oh, they were these I kind do. Of, I used to love wham bars. Yeah, these chewy, um, Busy. chewy bars full of um, sherbet in the middle. And I had a very sweet tooth. And on the ferry home, I spotted um, an opportunity to sell my wham bars for some money. So I bought my 20 wham bars for 10p each, and I sold them for 50p to a pound each on the ferry home. <laughs> very entrepreneurial. <laughs> the only problem with that was you had to return your cash at the end of the day to the headmaster and he would give it to you at the end of the pub. So I could hardly go back to him having turned my £2 into £10. <laughs> um, so I quickly got into trouble for having a lot of money in my on my person. Um, but that's probably my earliest recollection of, of money. Um, I've never been someone who's a... I'm not a saver, I'm not a spender. You know, I kind of believe that you sort of work to live. I think that's really important. Um, money certainly does make life easier. But, I mean, I'm not my startup. I'm self-funding that. So obviously I'm very conscious and aware of money. But I have a, a rule of thumb when it comes to investment decisions for whatever I need to do for my startup. I'm bootstrapping. I have a fantastic editor um, in Bristol called David. I call him my editor, and every unit I call, you know, what um, 
I kind of look at my investment decision if someone offers me a product or something. I say, how many hours of David could I get for this thing that it's going to cost me? And generally, that means I disregard most things that were put to me, but that helps keep me fairly sane and level-headed, certainly from for bootstrapping my business. Yeah. And from the story you've just told there about, you know, the, the, your first memory of money and that entrepreneurial streak, was that something that was developed? It was clearly developed in your childhood, but was that as a result of anything that you experienced or do you think that you were just opportunistic to a certain extent in, in your approach to life? Purely opportunistic. You know, my dad at that point had a, a corporate job um, very staid, very boring accountancy. Um, so certainly I didn't get anything from my father and nothing that had been socialized in terms of upbringing to that point. Because I must have been around, I want to say sometime, sometime between 10 to 13. Um, my dad went on to own what to set up and, and run a successful startup um, in software distribution. So that was afterwards. So yeah, that was just one of those things, an, an opportunistic moment to uh, make some cash. Although the headmaster never gave me my money back. Oh, that is terrible, isn't it? Um, is that not called theft? <laughs> <laughs> I, with all the stuff that's coming out now about schools and behaviour, yeah, I'm sure someone would have something to say about it. But it was a good life lesson. Yeah. It's funny. I can remember a very similar story that my from my brother uh, my brother was on a school trip, uh, and this is going back to a, probably around the 1980s, I would imagine, early 1980s or so. And he had one of these Pac-Man devices. And we didn't know this until probably a good couple, probably a good few years later. He would bring his Pac-Man um, device on these trips, not to play with himself, but he would charge his friends 50p a game. <laughs> 50p a game, which I thought at the time was daylight robbery. But actually, now that I am an entrepreneur, I am thinking, good on you. You spotted yeah. a, go you know, a gap in the market and uh, you made the most of it. So good on you for doing the same, even though you didn't get to enjoy the fruits of your entrepreneurialism. Yeah, and that's, that's a nice story of your brother. Did he like, maintain his entrepreneurial uh, spirit? No, he where he now he's now a partner for one of the big accountancy firms, and the name is completely eluding me at the moment. So he certainly continued his joy of numbers and money, um, but he doesn't work for himself. He works for for somebody else for for a, a corporate company, basically. So, no, but mind you, I don't know whether the same for you. Do do you remember making the decision? to become a business owner, to become an entrepreneur? I mean, well, certainly this current um, startup, OT, is, you know, it's relatively young. We only incorporated last, about first summer. Um, but I do remember the first time I did it, which was when I was living and working in London, um, working for Skype at the time, and Microsoft came in and acquired Skype for $8.5 billion or something, mm. which at that time was silly money. Today, that's... Um, yeah. No, it laughed at a relatively so inexpensive company. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, at that point, I was in a long distance relationship with a girl in Lausanne, in Switzerland. 
And I think of a long distance relationship, at some point you have to commit or walk away. I moved to Switzerland. Um, the relationship didn't work out, but then I started on my entrepreneurial journey. So that was, I guess, the first time I did it. Um, probably learned a lot from that, made quite a few mistakes as well. Um, so I'm hoping for better luck second time around. And I think that is the thing. I think as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, the, the road to success is, is is never a simple one. It's never a straightforward one. There are huge amounts of you know, deviations, blocks in the road, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think has been your biggest lesson so far? Good question. So I'm an only child and um, I grew up with my dad and my stepmom. Uh, but I never really got to know my mother. And I think as a byproduct of some of my childhood experiences, I became quite introverted and independent, and I wouldn't ask for help or guidance. And that's certainly something I'm very aware of now, second time around, that I think, what is it? Um, I want to say it's Notting Hill with, um, with Hugh Grant, which says, no man is an island. Um, but you know, well, we're all sometimes not very good at asking for advice, but I think men in particular, we can be very kind of stoic and, uh, you know, refuse to ask for directions and all these cliches. But certainly now I'm much better at putting my hand up and asking for help, asking for advice. Um, realize that especially now because I'm working in mental health, which is a hugely complex and fast evolving topic. Yeah. No one can know everything. You know, we're still learning so many things about the human mind. So certainly I'm much better putting my hand up and saying help. Yeah. And were were you avoiding asking for help when you were in corporate life when you needed it? Or do you think it's a trait that's developed since being an entrepreneur? Hmm. I think in corporate life, look, I was very lucky. I worked for some phenomenal brands yeah. with fairly rich resources now, when you're backed by working for companies that are backed by the likes of Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, you know, there's fairly deep pockets, um, big expense accounts, etc. So surrounded by great people who made my job a lot easier, for sure. Um, I think, I mean, I went through a period of, I guess, slightly depression, um, where I went really into my cave about four or five years ago. And it took me a good year to come out of that. And thanks to my well, now very supportive wife, at the time we were just, just living together, it was her encouragement, her leaving breadcrumbs to encourage me to come out and have a conversation and actually talk about my my struggles. And having gone through therapy, um, spent a lot of time with a wonderful psychotherapist, I'm much better now at asking for help. And recognizing my own limitations, you know, they call it self-care, self-compassion. Mm. But um, I think I needed to go through that experience um, to really hit those low points to now be much more aware of the need to ask for help. And certainly when it comes to mental health, um, men are terrible at this. Like they say 40% of men have never talked to anybody and that includes loved ones, GPs, best mates. No one they've never talked to anybody about their mental health. So Which I consider is, myself lucky yeah. in that sense. 
Yeah. And the reason I asked you the question is because I spent you know, 20 years in corporate life and, and then I started my entrepreneurial journey 13 or so years ago. And I can really resonate with the fact that particularly at the start of my journey, I thought I had to know it all. I thought I had to be completely self-sufficient and self-reliant. And I've reflected back over time on why that was the case. Because as you said, you know, in corporate life, we tend to be in these stoves, don't we, where we do something. You know, we're either in sales or we're in marketing or in product development or we're in finance um, or we're in customer service, whatever it might be. And I know I, I never, ever shied from asking somebody if I didn't know something, you know, I'd pick up the phone to the relevant department and I'd ask them the question. And I can remember the first few days when I joined my husband's business, but, you know, finding myself reaching for the phone to ask a question, thinking, oh, I can't do that. That that person isn't at the end of the phone. And I think it's taken me quite some time to be honest with myself about the gaps there were in, in my knowledge, in my experience, in those areas I didn't really particularly like, but to recognize, well, you don't have to do them, Leslie. You can find somebody who's better at it than you or you can find somebody who can teach you how to do it or you can simply give that task away to someone else so that that was the reason why I asked that question what you said with regards to mental health and how men in particular are not good at, at putting up their hands and asking for help has that been exacerbated by the pandemic and the fact that we are we are working more in isolation than we were prior to the pandemic i don't have a good answer i don't think i think on the one hand the pandemic has encouraged us to talk about mental health more than we've ever done it before mm -hmm. and that has to be a good thing you know, there was clearly some people had very traumatic pandemics, you know, lost loved ones, etc. So our experiences weren't universal, no. um, certainly. Um, but I believe one of the good things to come out of the pandemic is that we now have an awareness that mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter what your your gender, your skin color, how many, how much cash you have in the bank. Um, mental health can affect us all. I think certainly that men historically anyway there's still this gender imbalance or this stigma that men have to be strong have to be stoic um and certainly growing up in the uk you know i was taught that you know children should be seen and not heard um and it, it's it's a very i think it's a, there's a, there are cultural issues here certainly at play you know like the Quran, for example, doesn't allow kids to say, I'm not okay. You know, you're always fine, even if you're, if you're struggling. So there are cultural nuance differences at play. Um, I would say over on the whole, we're better at talking about it. Certainly now we sat, you know, we now see an awful lot of noise about mental health and well-being. Um, but has it encouraged 
more people to talk about it. Not sure. I think it depends on generations. Like Gen Z are very, very good at talking about their mental health and well-being. Our generation, and even especially my my parents' generation, my dad is just turned 80, he can't comprehend anything to do with mental health. When I filled up my startup last year, I had a huge argument with him about the use of the word stigma. He felt that the use of stigma itself was a dirty word, um, and that's one that shouldn't be um, aired in public. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways we've come a long way as a society, but we've still got a long way to go in terms of normalising the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know whether this is too hard or too generic a question to answer, but the the attitude your dad has, is that because of our culture, the British culture around, you know, a stiff upper lip? Or do you think because that generation either went through the Second World War or went through the recovery after the Second World War, that they are, as far as they're concerned, more robust in how they approach the things that are happening in the world and have happened to the world over the last few years? Oh, well, my, it's a difficult question to answer as well. Um, from my father's perspective, or well, I think it's well, I think it's purely ignorance doesn't want to know. And so I think as I shared with you when we talked, chatted about this, my mother was um, sectioned under the Mental Health Act in the late mm-hmm. 70s with schizophrenia. Um, at a time in the late 1970s, in the UK certainly, if you had any kind of mental health disorder, the society's answer was to put you into some sort of asylum and four speechy pills. Um, a lot of that ignorance still maintains itself today. Mm-hmm. Um, I was shocked recently to find that in the UK we're still sectioning 150 people a day for mental health disorders in the UK. Didn't know that. And that's, I mean, whatever the numbers is, I think it extrapolates out to something like 55,000, which I was just horrified yeah. at. Um, I think today we have, a, certainly we have a lot more awareness, for sure. Um, that awareness can obviously be a two-edged sword. It can obviously lead to lots of anxiety, and it's also causing a lot of issues with with youth, with adolescents, um, around you know how they um, manage their mental health. Yeah. But I think that I don't believe every generation has its own ignorance. Um, I think it was just my dad's generation. It was just one of those things. It just, yeah. You know, wasn't talked about. We used we still used words like uh, lunatic and crazy and um, words you know today that were not meant to say. Yeah. I think it was just a byproduct from another era. And yeah. He he means well, but unfortunately, my dad is never going to be the most empathetic of of individuals. And he he has his experiences, and, and they you know they are as, as valid and as valuable as other people's when you consider them in the context of what what he has gone through. When when we look at mental health and you know what is going on you know currently in the economy around you know cost of living and the financial crises that you know many people are finding themselves in, is that having a bigger effect on people's mental health from what you are seeing right now because 
of that sense of financial trauma? I mean, yeah, I believe so. I mean, certainly, okay, every country is going through, is coming out of the pandemic with different experiences. Yeah. Um, certainly here in Switzerland, we don't have anything like the economic turmoil that you know the UK is going through right now. But I think financial stress, financial anxiety is certainly an area that we don't haven't possibly considered historically. Um, so yeah, when you look at suddenly people's um, interest rates and their payments doubling down on whether it's their their, their lease for their car or for their, you know, their credit card debts or their, their mortgage payments, that's going to keep people up and awake at night. And if you're not so many, um, so many of the mental health issues we face in the society are caused by a lack of sleep and you know, yeah. having so much cortisol flowing through you and you're waking up, you're exhausted, you're tired, um, whether it's in menopause or just because you know you're worried about how you're going to pay the bills. So we are, I certainly think, becoming much more anxious as a society. Um, although at the same time, diagnosis is also becoming much more prevalent. And there's a lot of, um, how would you say, controversy around diagnosis of mental health disorders. Uh, and some people would say it's become a lot easier to get diagnosed. And certainly we're seeing some children who are gaming the system to get an ADHD diagnosis so they can get an extra 15, 20 minutes from their exams. Um, but as a whole, I think, yes, um, financial anxiety, stress can have a huge impact on us. And historically, again, it comes back to you know, man, whether you agree rightly or wrongly, would take a lot of that pressure on himself and not necessarily share that with his loved ones. Um, and that also is the root cause of a lot of problems as well. Um, you know, the old adage of problem shared is problem halved, I think has never been truer for the types of situations we're living through right now. I will be back after this short break. Financial awareness is not taught in enough schools, which means children are not receiving the level of information needed to help them become money savvy. With 87% of 11 to 18 year olds saying they have limited knowledge about managing money, only 4 in 10 children and young people saying they've had some financial education at school and research demonstrating that those who don't receive financial education as a child are more likely to be unemployed or earning less today than those who did. This is why I have developed the Money and Mindset Made Simple for Teenagers online self-paced programme to help our children to empower their knowledge of and relationship with money. As a parent, you want to equip your children with the essential life skills to allow them to thrive in today's fast-moving world. So go to the show notes to access full details for the programme. If you are a school or institute that would like to use the programme under licence, then reach out directly to me via email leslie at themoneyconfidenceacademy.com. Now, let's return to the show. I think you talking about this is, is you know, is one of the key reasons why I made the decision back in 
November 2022 to invite male guests onto the show. Up until that point in time, I only had female guests on the show, even though, you know, I do have a male audience as well. And one of the key drivers for, for that was if I'm encouraging people to talk about money more, how can I only be encouraging half of you know the demographic essentially and i think that extends into what we're talking about now with regards to you know men and their mental health not opening up because of that need to be seen to be the man whatever that connotation whatever that meaning is to that individual so as you know as a man what how can we women help our men to open up and have that conversation because some of us may not even be aware that 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 turmoil that turbulence is going on because he's putting on a good show he's putting on that that face that I'm managing it all so how do we effectively have that conversation without it just being a challenge I mean all I can really share I think here Leslie is what my and was supported my wife when I was at my my lowest my lowest ebb mm. um she didn't put too much pressure on she left breadcrumbs and tried to encourage me to talk but under my own terms um there was never any raised voices it was always just um just trying to encourage a conversation and I think it's just being just being there for your loved one. Um, men generally, we we internalize very much. Now we we smash it when we're anxious or we're angry. And the prevalence of our behaviors, we there's substance abuse, whether it's drink, drugs, um, or we smash stuff up. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a sweeping generalization, but generally the you know the way men men deal with things. But I think it's patience. Actually, um, there are lots, several good resources online. Um, I read one recently for a post I, I wrote. I should probably find find the details and talk about it. But I think it's really just just being there for the guy, not um, or for the partner, not making any judgments, but just giving him the time and the space to to open up. Because guys, when we are badgered or asked lots of questions, we naturally shut down. Yeah. So it's giving a, a space to breathe, a space to be, and just knowing that you have someone there who loves you unconditionally and who isn't putting pressure on you um, is hugely um, not gratifying. Stephen, it's the wrong, the wrong word, but it's just an amazing feeling yeah. when you've got someone that you know that you know they will stop you falling. They've got your back. Um, that's an incredible feeling. And certainly I'm very, very fortunate to have that uh, with my better half, with my wife. Um, I'm sure lots of guys have it as well, um, but maybe because they don't want to talk about it, they maybe don't realise how lucky they are. But it's um, so it's a long-winded answer. I think... Um, no, no, it's very just helpful. Just try not to force it out of guys. You know, we shut down when we... When we're, not when we're nagged, but when we're asked lots of questions, we just need time to, time, space, and a safe space 
to be able to, to share our frustrations, our vulnerabilities. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is, it, it isn't just, you know, men that, that feel like that. What you described there, uh, you know, I had a, a very, very similar, very small period, but I can remember in October of 21, feeling really low, really demotivated. And I think we were coming out of the pandemic and we did not know what was going to happen. And as usual, the media was putting out, you know, all the variety of depressing messages that the media puts out. And I am the kind of person who, no man's an island other than for Leslie. Leslie is an island, or Leslie was an island. Um, and I can remember, I'm in my garden office, and I can remember going down to my house and feeling really upset that my husband didn't notice that I was upset. And, you know, sitting on the sofa and thinking, well, why does he not notice I'm upset? Why is he not asking me, am I okay? And the reason why he wasn't asking if I was okay is because Leslie is always okay. You know, he had didn't have any indication that Leslie wasn't okay until there was something on TV that triggered the waterworks and I was howling. He still hadn't noticed that I was howling until he glanced, are you okay? And then, you know, I had that complete and utter breakdown, but you know, only for a very small amount of time, minutes, not hours or days or anything like that. But that clearly demonstrated to me as well, the need to be vulnerable, the need to be honest, the need to recognize You don't need to have this tough outer exterior. I'm a Cancerian crab, so I put it down to that, essentially. Um, So I think everything that you you shared there was really valuable because I think I understand how I operate, but I don't necessarily understand how my husband operates, although he is very, very even in his emotional um, outlets, etc. But I think for the, for the ladies listening, or for the men listening, um, you know, it's really important to understand that. Give that person the time, let them share what they want to share, and just be there when they are ready to share. Yeah, I think that's a fair, it's a nice way of looking at it. And actually, remind me of. Um story there about talking to your husband and him not recognizing we're okay reminded me of something on Instagram recently that my wife um, shared with me and I want to say her name's either Renee Brown or Brené Brown Brené Brown yeah Brené Brown thank you we can maybe find the link and put it in the comments afterwards for people but she talked about the fact how that you know we, we say that this a marriage is 50 50 or a relationship is 50 50. And her premise is actually that Tosh, um, depending on where you are each day in terms of how you're feeling, one person might be at 80% and the other might be at 20%. And her and her husband each day check in, be where they are. Yeah. And as long as they can both get to 100%, then they're good. Yeah. If one of them says, you oh, know, I'm struggling today, I'm only at 20%, and the other one's at, say, 50%, then they sit down to try and work out how do they, can they support each other to get to that, that 30% extra to get into that 100% for the day. And it was a really fantastic way yeah. of sharing the load and also not realizing that the, bur- the burden should always fall on the wife as, you know, historically, 
know, we put a lot of pressure on the wife. If the caregiver... The nurturer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He puts food on the table, the mother, whatever it might be. This way, they shared the responsibilities evenly throughout their, um, throughout their relationship, their journey through life. And that was really, she, she, she says it much nicer than I'm expressing it, but it was a really, yeah, I thought it was a really nice way of, of sharing the load together. Yeah, and I like that a lot. And in you know, my own relationship with my husband, we note that or notice that we're not we're never ever both down at the same time. So if one is down, the other will bring the other up and vice versa. There's only been once, maybe twice, where we have both been down at the same time. And the alarm bells have gone off then. Oh my god. How can we both be down? And I think that instantly has brought us back up to have that realisation. I haven't seen that Brené Brown um, conversation, so I'm going to look it up because that is you know, a really, really good reference point for, for accepting you can be equal. You can take on your shared balance of the responsibility for the emotional status of the relationship but it doesn't need to fall on one pair of shoulders all the time. It's shared equitably over the course of time. And I think probably that's what we all want in any relationship that we have is over the course of the relationship, there will be that that support that one needs to give more than the other. But in other situations, the roles reverse. So thank you for sharing that, because I think that is it's really, really helpful. So tell me more about your new business, what you're doing. Uh, so my new business is called OT, which is the uh, Latin genitive for OT, which means peace, calm, and ease. And what we're doing really is measuring, uh, measuring, monitoring, and tracking mental health in schools and in the workplace. Um, we track that, um, that over time. And then depending on what the data shows, we then develop interventions to tackle the various data points. So, for example, we might do a survey in, um, of school school well-being and look, out, look, for example, at adolescence, and that might show the school or the kids have issues with self-harm or substance abuse or lack of sense of belonging, and we can then design interventions to tackle those particular issues. Um, and we track those that data, these data points over the course of a year. So you can really start to... Um, even out the adverse environmental factors and actually get a true sense of what's going on. And how open are schools to that approach right now? Because it sounds fundamentally vital, I think, to schools particularly right now. Um, so certainly here in Switzerland, um, the we don't have the same level of, well, the education sector is not funded in the same way um, as you are in the UK. So mental health and education are two distinct silos that can't merge here in Switzerland. So I'm at the moment talking to international schools predominantly. Um, there's a lot of good, in, a lot of interest there, but there is a fear that once they open Pandora's box, they're not sure what they're going to find. But every head teacher, I mean, schooling was, had always been difficult, you know, even before the pandemic. The pandemic just made it, and it shined a microscope on it and made it a lot harder. But every head teacher knows his or her issues within the school. It's just, do, how do they confront it? So the story resonates 
Um, but it's probably you know a little bit slower than we would hope. Um, and in corporates, the same. There's a lot of noise, um, some great discussions going on, but um, maybe not seeing as much of an uptake as we would have hoped. But then it's also early days. Yeah. And I think that is the thing, isn't it? With financial well-being, with mental health, with with what is going to shake out within organisations as a result of people experiencing those shocks, organisations, be that schools, companies, etc., are not fully appreciating, I don't think, the impact right now. So they're trying to do almost an impact analysis at the same time as trying to put sticking plasters in place where they can, as opposed to looking at a wider, more holistic approach that is going to create a way of managing this for the long term rather than simply managing the symptoms of the individuals as they're experiencing them right now. Yeah, and I think I'm much fair. Certainly, I think we'll see a sea change in the next three years, certainly with companies realising that they have whether it's because of the Equalities Act or you know, because of other legislation, but they do have a legal duty of care to look after the physical and mental health of their of their staff. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book by um, a professor from Stanford, I think it is, called uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer. And he talks about his the book is called Dying for a Paycheck. And in there, he talks about the correlation between uh, stress at work that is making people ill causing families to rupture, um, people losing their jobs because they can't handle the stress, the anxiety, and how, as a society, work is making us ill. It's causing cancer, it's causing diabetes. And I think for those companies that are pragmatic and that respect their employees and realise that it's not just about a paycheck, they're the ones who are going to um, succeed here. Absolutely. Um, so we're already seeing Generation Z um, refusing to work for companies who don't have well-being strategies in place, etc. Um, it's no longer about um, how much money you take home. It's does there's an opportunity for companies, schools, whoever it might be, to actually to prioritise the mental health and the well-being of their their staff over and above that of a paycheck. And for those that do, the opportunities will be tremendous. Yeah, no, I agree. And I and I think partly that comes down to um, Gen Z appear to have a better sense of self-value than, you know, a number of the previous generations seem to have had and want to ensure that they're themselves, you know, are valued um, and are not just becoming, as you say, you know, an employee with a paycheck at the end of it. But what happens in between with regards the stress, the pressure, the financial issues that are going on, the mental health issues that are going on, the isolation, etc. All that feeds into that. And and maybe Gen X are the ones that are going to make a stand. And that appears to be the case. I'm going to make a stand and make companies change, which appears to a certain extent to be the only way companies are going to change because they're being made to change. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, if you come back to the point about us, our generation being stoic and not wanting to make a fuss, um, yeah, Gen Z are the ones leading the charge at that. They're the, the generation that talks most about their mental health and well-being. Um, they also have some of the, the worst prevalence of mental health and well-being. But at the same time, they're willing to get help, to seek treatment, to talk to therapists, and to they have much more self-compassion and are much more self-aware. So that can only be a good thing. But I mean, it is it must be incredibly hard to be heading up a firm and looking at having to deal with five generations of talent and and having to then segment your offering, whether it's training or mental health, you know, around age and gender. Yeah, that's it's not easy. Yeah. But for those companies that do take that, do go that extra mile, and especially with the, the talent wars we've got and the fact people quiet quitting, something like they say, 80% of people are not engaged at work. Yeah. Now, these are tr- crazy statistics. Mm, absolutely. Um, it, I don't think it's rocket science to actually to make a difference. Yeah. Um, the problem is some companies, they're like bunnies in headlights. They don't know what to do. Yeah. They don't know where to start. And for us, you know, that's all we say, measure measure it first and actually get some real evidence-based data and then you can start to um, make a difference based on that data rather than just whistling in the wind absolutely yeah absolutely so how can people connect with you martin linkedin is probably the best the best way um and then all my contact details email etc on there so i would say just um, look at my linkedin profile and if any of that resonates be very happy for people to reach out and those details will be in the show notes, so making it very, very easy for people to connect with you. Thank you very much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you shining a spotlight on how we can all help each other to open up and to have those conversations. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. No, thank you for having me, Leslie. It's been been great. And yeah, look forward to convers- continuing the conversation with, with yourself and with others on this topic because it's yeah, it's gonna take ah, a long time still to normalise the narrative. But we do our little bit one day at a time. Absolutely, totally agree. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to the latest episode of the Let's Talk Money and More podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to better understand your relationship with money, then please head to the resources section on my website, the Money Confidence Academy, and download my monthly money mindset audit. This will allow you to create a benchmark for where your relationship with money is right now and allow you to continue to measure it on a monthly basis as you do the inner work to improve it. You will also find a copy of my Money Archetypes Assessment at the same time, which will allow you to start to really understand which are your three primary money archetypes driving your relationship with money and how to use this information to make, spend, keep and invest more money. Or if you are a female online business owner, why not join my free Money Confidence community over on Facebook? A link to the group and other ways to connect with me can be found in the show notes. Finally, if you have enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do tell others about it. And I would love it if you rated it and gave a review.